Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Before delving into specific doctrines, we need to first think about what the Bible is. In this lecture, you'll learn what the Bible says about itself, some reasons to believe God inspired it, as well as the major types of biblical scholars and how they approach Scripture. This episode, along with the last one, serves to round out the introduction for this course. Here now is episode 157, Theology Part 2, Bibliology. Bibliology is your view or your doctrine, your study, your logos about the Biblos. Biblos is the Greek word for Bible. And what we're going to talk about in this lecture is some assumptions and methodology. People come from all different kinds of backgrounds. And I want to make clear where it is I'm coming from, from the, for this class so that you you understand how that how that mindset works. To start with, I want to ask you the question, what is the Bible? Some brave person want to offer a definition. Um, some people say that it's God's word. Okay. Yep. Anybody else? I call the inspired word. Uh-huh. Okay. Yep. Inspired. When I look at it, it does look like a book, doesn't it? It looks like a very big book, over a thousand pages. But it's really a library. It's really a library of books. How many books are in the Bible, do you know? 66. 66. I mean, if you got out of Atlanta Bible College without knowing there are 66 books in the Bible, that would be to our shame, I tell you. So there are 66 books in the Bible. And thus, the Bible is itself a library. Originally, these books were not all sewn together in a Bible. They were separate documents. They were, in ancient times, they were scrolls that were rolled up. And then as time went on, they started to get stitched together, but not necessarily as an entire Bible until probably a couple hundred years after Christ, when the first books got invented. So, the Bible is a library of 66 books. It's written by... Uh, it's, it's hard to say exactly, but about, around 40 different people wrote the Bible. And the Bible itself claims to be inspired or to be from God. That word inspired comes from this text in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, which we'll get to in a, in a minute. But I just want to cruise through kind of in order a number of verses about the Bible. And so, uh, do any of you have a Bible? I think you all have Bibles. Just, yeah, let's go ahead and open that up. It's a nice looking Bible. What do you have? What are you packing over there? An uh, IV. Okay, well, you know, you got to start somewhere, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I should have bit my tongue on that one. All right, well, uh, whatever, whatever version you have, I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be just fine. Uh, what do you have over there? What's the Fletcher? Uh, ESV. ESV. Wow, upgraded, huh? And then, uh, what else? We, what do you have? HCSB. HCSB. Wow, so we have at least three versions in the room. Anyone have something different than those three? King James. King James. Okay, so we have the King's English in the back. The NIV. ESV, ESV, HCSB. And All right, well, whatever Bible you have, let's go to these verses. Matthew chapter 1, <laughs> verse 22. So this is Matthew, the gospel writer, who is talking about how Jesus is, go is going to be born. And in Matthew 1, 21, we read, She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save all his people from their sins. And then verse 22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel. What I want you to focus on here is verse 22. 
and where it says the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So according to Matthew, who's writing the book of Matthew, this prophecy, this prophecy comes from Isaiah chapter 7. This prophecy is not Isaiah giving his opinion. This is not Isaiah concocting a beautiful piece of literature, which Isaiah is a beautiful piece of literature. But from the perspective of Matthew, Isaiah is what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Okay, so it's, it's God speaking through or by the prophet. Look at Mark chapter 12, verse 36. Just want to cruise through a number of these with you so that you can see how the Bible talks about itself. Because ultimately, that's the fairest approach to any book is to meet it and understand it on its own terms. Is that the journaling Bible over there? Uh, I've got one of those. Very nice. So if you want a lot of space to write things in, right? All right. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Mark is written by Mark. Now, I mean, these, this is not a difficult question, right? Mark is written by Mark. And when Mark is talking about Psalm 110, which is what he's quoting here, he's saying, well, David wrote this psalm, but he's, he doesn't say it just like that. He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Now, what do your translations say on that? Does, it probably says by the Holy Spirit, right? Um, speaking by the Holy Spirit. Speaking by the Holy Spirit. Is that what yours says? Yeah. I think that's better. The ESV, I think is what I'm using here, is, is in my opinion, dropping the ball there. But uh, whether it's in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit, it's clear that David is not speaking on his own. Right? So when it comes to what Mark says about the Psalms, it's, it's a Holy Spirit-inspired collection. The Psalm, there are 150 Psalms, and they're a collection of documents. Let's look at the next one, Acts chapter 1. Let's see here. Acts chapter 1, verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So who's speaking here? Peter. Peter, right? Peter, look at verse 15. It says Peter stood up, right? So Peter is speaking, and Peter is saying that the scripture had to be fulfilled, which... The Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. So once again, somebody in one part of the Bible is crediting another part of the Bible as being a product or a result of Holy Spirit activity. Holy Spirit, of course, we're going to have to do a whole lecture on the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit, of course, is a way of talking about God in action. What is God doing? You say, well, that's the Holy Spirit. Okay. Then we get chapter 3, verse 18. And we read on that one. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So, once again, God foretold. Instead of saying the Holy Spirit in this case, it just says God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets. So now, as far as not just Isaiah, but all of the prophets, because there are a bunch of prophets, right? You have Isaiah, you have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you have the 12 other prophets, the shorter books, right? Hosea, Amos, I mean, there's tons of prophets. And they, a number of them testify about the suffering of Christ. And it says here that God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. Then the next one is chapter 4, verse 25, and we read there, that it says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, By the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? So that's a quote from Psalm 2. And once again, it says, Well, it was the mouth of David, but it was also by the Holy Spirit. Then the next one is chapter 28, verse 25. And that one says, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. This one is Paul. And Paul is saying that it was the Holy Spirit that spoke through 
Isaiah the prophet. So again, I mean, this is getting a little repetitive, but you see how over and over in the New Testament, references to the Old Testament in particular, because at, let's face it, at the time of this speech here, when Paul is speaking in Acts chapter 28, the New Testament hadn't yet been written, or at least only certain little parts of it, such as the epistles that Paul had already written. Because the New Testament gets written later, in the New Testament, when they talk about the scriptures, they're almost always talking about the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, because they're, they're, they're writing it just then. So it's not, it's, it's not there yet. Hebrews 3, 7. Right, so this is another quote from the Old Testament. Does anybody know where this comes from? You have a study Bible with notes in it, references. Psalms 95, Yeah, very good. So this is coming from the Psalms. Once again, it says, therefore, and this is the writer of Hebrews. Uh, we're, we're not sure who wrote Hebrews. It's not like uh, the epistles of Paul, where it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were at Corinth or something like that. Hebrews doesn't have an... Uh, an introduction like that. So there are various theories about who wrote Hebrews, but whoever it was, this person wrote, therefore, verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So the New Testament, once again, quoting the Old Testament, saying this is a result of the Holy Spirit speaking or of God speaking. And then we have the, the major verse. I guess that's slightly out of order, isn't it? 2 Timothy 3.16 this is the most important verse on the subject of inspiration and what the Bible is because it has the word all, which is really significant. All scripture. So it's not just talking about the prophets. It's not talking about the Torah, the first part of the Bible. It's not talking about the writings. It's talking about all scripture, right? And it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, what do your translations say on that? All scripture is what? God breathed. God breathed. What, what about? inspired, but there's a footnote that says. Okay, so yours, yours actually has the word inspired in it, right, Madison? Okay. The NASB also uses the term inspired. It's the word theopanevstos, which, uh, which means, uh, it's a Greek word, it means literally God breathed. Certain translations translate it inspired, and certain ones translate it God breathed, whether you want to be literal or more of a, like a, a meaning kind of thing, uh, or more of a um, thought for thought than a word for word. Essentially, the idea is that it comes from God. The word inspired, actually, I, I think probably the best Latin word would have been expired. But in English, expire means what? It's bad. It goes bad or it dies, right? Like, so you don't want to say that. But expire would be more literal because you would be breathing. Uh, the word in uh, Latin, I think, is spiro, uh, which is related to the word for spirit, which means to breathe. And uh, the word spirit in both Hebrew and Greek, by the way, means breath wind, or spirit. It means all of those. So spirit is sort of like God breathing. Isn't that kind of cool? I don't think it's supposed to be literally the breath of God because God is not in a physical body so, and he's not on planet earth. So like we're not talking about physical breathing, but it's a way of God explaining that they, these words are really coming from him, right? They're really going out from him. And that's what it means in 2 Timothy 3.16, when it says all scripture is inspired by God. I mean, if there's one verse on the subject of bibliology that matters the most is 2 Timothy 3.16. However, a close second is 2 Peter chapter 1. And I love how this is worded too. It's just so cool. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. It says... For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is Peter talking, and he's like, look, guys, we didn't make this up. These are not myths. These are not stories. These are not fictional accounts. These are not just like 
uplifting literature that makes you feel inspired and, and ready to take on the world. That's not the kind of inspiration we're talking about here. We're talking about inspired in the sense that God is behind it. So what Peter's saying is like, look, we didn't make up clever stories or myths here, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's saying, look, I saw Jesus. Didn't just see Jesus, I saw his majesty. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this, I don't know what your voice of God sounds like, but this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What do you think he's talking about there? Uh, is it whenever Jesus was being baptized? Or no, no, that's a good guess, though. Transfiguration. Very good. You got it right. The transfiguration was this incident during the, the life of Jesus when he just took up Peter and John, Peter and James and John. I don't remember if it was two or three, probably all three. And they went up on this mountain and suddenly Jesus changed appearance right in front of them. And he started, his clothes were all white and started glowing. And then they hear this voice from God. This is my beloved son. And so Peter's like, look, I was there, I saw it, I'm an eyewitness, I heard that voice. This is not made up, this is what he's saying about himself. Number one rule about reading any document, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, is to read it in a charitable manner, take it on its own terms, if, unless you can disprove it, right? If, if, if you wanna disprove it, that's fine, but like, at least meet it on its own terms. What is Second Peter saying? It's saying that, look, we didn't make this up, guys, we were there. Verse 19, and we have something more sure, more sure than seeing Jesus, more sure than hearing the voice of God on a mountain. That's what he says. More sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy of scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is essentially the same thing we've just read over and over and over again, how people were talking about Scripture. By the way, the word Scripture just means writing, in case you were curious. Uh, uh, it comes from the Latin word for just handwriting, like scribe, Scripture. What you scribe is Scripture. So it's not like saying the word scripture makes it holy or makes it true. It's just like, that's just what they called it, the, the writing. This is what makes it holy and what makes it true. What he says here in verses 20 and 21. One, that it's not just something that somebody came up with. It's not just someone's interpretation of God. It's not just someone's opinion of what God is like or what God, how God wants us to live. This is not even produced, according to verse 21, it's not even produced by the will of humans, right? But these people spoke, these people that wrote the Bible, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so God is interacting with people and they're getting carried along by His influence, which is through the Spirit. All right, then the last one there is Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. And we read there, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Does anybody know what the word revelation means? Reveal. What's that? Reveal. Reveal, to show, to uh, unveil, to make something clear, to, to manifest. That's what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, God gave Jesus, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Do you see the chain of command here? Right? Number one, at the top, God gives this to Jesus. Jesus then uses an angel, sends an angel to John. John is going to write this book down, the book of Revelation, and John is, through this book, going to give it to the servants of Christ. It's a pretty elaborate chain. I'm not saying every book works exactly like that, but in the case of the book of Revelation, that's what it says. It says that it was God 
gave it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to an angel. The angel came to talk to John and showed him this, this vision. John wrote it down, and then through John it goes to the servants, which would include us today. Pretty cool, huh? All right, now as far as what the Bible says about itself, I have all these verses listed for you that we've just read. Now when it comes to the question, well, how can you trust it? How do you really know that its claims are true? Because look, you and I, we could write a book and we could just say, thus says the Lord, right? So how do you know that this book or these collection, this collection of books is true? Well, that's really not something we're going to cover in this class. That's something we cover in apologetics. We spend four lectures on just that question, at least four lectures. And I have a cutesy little acronym for you. It's PUMA, except it has an extra M. So it's really more like PUMA, but that didn't sound good. And nobody wears PUMA shoes. So anyhow, reasons to believe in inspiration. We have the P, predictive prophecy, U, unflattering honesty, M, medical insights, M, martyrdom, and A, archaeology. Sadly, I don't have time to go through all these with you in this class, but I can explain to you what they mean at least. Predictive prophecy is that there are certain prophecies in the Bible that were written and we know when they were written, and then they came true later. Sometimes in the lifetime of the person, like for example, Jeremiah prophesied that Israel would be taken into exile or Judah would be taken into exile, and it was. But he also prophesied that they would come back from exile 70, at the end of 70 years. Well, Jeremiah died well before the end of 70 years, but then they did come back. Now, how in the world could Jeremiah know that when the nation of Babylon took all the people out of Judah into exile, that they would ever return? How would he possibly know that? I mean, it's not like that happened before or happened again later. That just happened that one time. And it's not like it was standard operating procedure for Babylon to hold a nation in a separate location and then give them back. That's not normal in how they handled captivity. So that would be a good indication that Jeremiah was actually a prophet and he did interact with God and, and God told him to write these things down. When it comes to Jeremiah, there's this really interesting incident in his life with Baruch the scribe. Have you ever heard of Baruch the scribe? Probably not. I mean, he's fairly obscure. Baruch the scribe wrote down the words of Jeremiah. Typically, people didn't know how to read or write, so you needed to get a professional to do that for you. And so Baruch wrote down all these different words and on a prophecy, not the whole book of Jeremiah, but just like a certain, like, I don't know if it was like a chapter or two on a scroll, and he brought it to the king. And he says, thus says the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet, and he read what the prophecy was. And you know what the king did with that prophecy? Does anybody remember this? The king was sitting there, and I think it was winter time because there was a fire going. And as, as the scribe read the prophecy, the king cut the paper and threw it into the fire. So then Baruch came home and told Jeremiah what happened, and God gave Jeremiah a second prophecy, and that's the actual one we have in the Bible because the first one got thrown away. But it was the same words, but then extra ones added on because of what the king just did. <laughs> and now here's the crazy thing about Baruch, which again, I'm not supposed to tell you in this class, but I, I can't really help myself, is that they found a bula with Baruch the scribe's name on it. A bula is a, uh, a clay seal that you would use to, uh, to indicate who you are, like on a, uh, on a scroll or a document. You would dip it in uh, either ink or wax, and it would put your mark on it. They found Baruch, the, the, this like obscure Jewish scribe from the time of Jeremiah. They found, they found the bula uh, with his name on it. The ar archaeologists have. So that's pretty cool. But anyhow, that's, that's a little bit about predictive prophecy. Unflattering honesty is huge when it comes to authenticity. Look, if you make up a book about yourself, what would the book of Madison Sisler say? You know, it would say, 
oh, I made all these mistakes and it was so embarrassing. No, it'd be like, oh, I, I did this and it worked out pretty well. You probably would skip over the parts that were like really embarrassing about yourself, right? Uh, and so, especially if you did something like say, I don't know, deny Jesus to a, to, you know, to a bunch of people. Didn't Peter do that? Or what if, you, what if you took Jesus aside and rebuked him and told him he was wrong? Didn't Peter do that too? Like if you were making it up, would you put that in there? <laughs> oh, and then I denied Jesus, right? So the fact, and there's so much unflattering honesty. It's not just in the New Testament. Look at, look at Noah. He gets off the ark. What in the world happened there? I mean, there are a lot of theories about what happened afterwards. But what's clear is that he got drunk. Right, he planted it. I mean, look, if you're starting the world over again and you're making this stuff up, like, would you have Noah get drunk? You wouldn't make that up. Or look at Abraham. Abraham's pretty bad for a long time. I mean, he keeps lying about his wife. He's like, oh, she's just my sister. And, you know, she, they get in all kinds of trouble for that repeatedly. And, you know, Sarah's treatment of Hagar is just despicable. And yet she's the matriarch. She's the one that's going to bear the, the son who's the hope of the human civilization and redemption and eventually lead to Christ. Look at the people in the Christ line. Look at the people in the genealogy of Matthew. Right? You've got Rahab, she was a prostitute. You've got Bathsheba, who cheated on her husband. Right? I mean, look, if, if this stuff didn't really happen, why write it down like that? And so, unflattering honesty is another reason why we have good reason to believe the Bible is true. Medical insights, that's really uh, more focused on the book of Leviticus, where we have a pretty good idea of what Egyptian medicine was like based on a papyrus that survives from that time. And then you look at all the medical wisdom or knowledge within the book of Leviticus, and it's just like, it's free, freakishly accurate by today's standards. You know, ideas like quarantine, life is in the blood, eighth day circumcision, these, these kinds of things that are in the book of Leviticus, it's, it's just like really, really hard to believe that Moses just made this stuff up and accidentally got it all right. When we know what medical cures were around in Egypt that Moses would have been familiar with, there's no potions. Like, come on, why aren't there any potions in the book of Leviticus? Everybody knows that a little urine from a faithful woman will cure your eyesore. What? Well, that's what it says in the Egyptian <laughs> documents. Uh, and yet you don't find any weird stuff like that in the book of Leviticus. Then martyrdom is the idea that these people, many of them died for their beliefs. And they were in a position to know if it was true or not. You and I, if we die for our beliefs, we weren't actually there. We didn't actually see Jesus rise from the dead. They did. And they still went to the cross or they were still beheaded for that testimony. So I think that is good reason to believe that they were sincere. They weren't making stuff up. And then we have archaeology. I already mentioned that with the Bula of uh, Baruch, but there's tons of stuff, tons of stuff. There's a stone they found that says Pilate's name on it, the guy who had Jesus crucified. Uh, there's so much archaeology. Like the, the cities, they found the city. Well, Jerusalem's still there, obviously, but they found Jericho. They found a lot of these different cities that are mentioned in the Bible. The city of Lachish, for example, which in the Old Testament, there was a great battle that occurred in the city of Lachish. And they found like the various layers in the various layers. They found certain weapons and stuff that were used in that battle. And it goes right along with what the Bible says happened in the time when the Assyrians came into the land. And so archaeology can offer a lot of corroborating evidence. I'm going to just add on some more just because why not, right? The, the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus is, is, we can make a solid case, not assuming the Bible's inspired, that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened just based on standard uh, historical practices or historiography. Uh, we can look at the incredible preservation of the Bible, the fact that two empires tried to destroy the Bible and yet it survives. I mean, how many ancient books do you know that people actually read today, or that have survived, or that have survived in this many copies. I mean, it's really remarkable. The Bible also changes lives. 
So that's the idea of testimony, that there are countless people who have read this book or parts of it, and it totally changed their lives. So there's, there seems to be a power in it. Do you know how many languages we have the Bible in today? 554 trans, translations. That's different languages. That's not like English translations. That's 554 different languages for the whole Bible. If we're just talking about the New Testament, it's over 1,000. 1,333 to be exact. Of the New Te just like the New Testament itself has been translated into that many languages. If you look up on Wikipedia the list of most translated books, the Bible's number one. It's above the United Nations Declaration for Human Rights. It's above everything. That's what number one means, I suppose. Um, so the Bible is a big deal. If you want to know more about Reasons to Believe and dig into that, uh, I'll, I'll suggest that you get this book here or just take my class on apologetics. But the book that I use is called Building Belief by Chad Meister. It's a great book. It's really helpful. It lays out a lot of these different things. However, today in most non-religious universities, so just like secular universities around America, the people who teach Bible typically don't believe it's actually inspired by God. They treat it as if it's just literature or a collection of documents that maybe are interesting, but not to be taken authoritatively. And this is something that came about slowly over the last couple hundred years. And the history of it, I think, is worth studying. I'm, I'm not going to get into it in this class because that's more of a church history thing. But let, let me just put it this way. There was a time when just everybody believed in the Bible, right? In the 1500s and the 1600s and the 1700s. And then a movement came in called the Enlightenment where people started questioning the authority of Scripture, the validity of Scripture. And Christians really took two different strategies on that. Some Christians said, well, you can't beat them, join them. And they're like, all right, well, we'll grant that there are contradictions and there are problems with the Bible. And we'll just, we'll hold on to a, a smaller form of Christianity, uh, what's called mainline or liberal Christianity. And we'll say, well, we know that miracles don't happen because the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution has taught us that. So, you know, the resurrection is really a metaphor for the disciples realizing that in their own heart, Jesus has risen. Jesus has given them new meaning in life, right? And so that's one form of responding to biblical criticisms. The other form is to say, no, we're going to fight you and we're going to fight you on your own terms. So if the criticism is there, there are no miracles, or something like that, then they're gonna defend miracles, right? And so Christianity really split over the last couple hundred years. In America, it's really only over the last hundred years that Christianity has split into these two different kinds, broadly speaking. And depending on what kind of school you go to, you're gonna get one perspective or another. This school, Atlanta Bible College, is on the perspective of the side that says, no, we do have good answers to the criticisms, therefore the criticisms are invalid, and we are going to continue believing in what the Scripture says. Um, but I, want you, I just want to make you aware that there are two ways that Christians handle the criticisms that have come up over the last couple hundred years. And that's all I'm going to say about that, unless you have a question about it. Okay. So today, there really are different types of Bible scholars. Uh, I think, broadly speaking, I want to say there are four types of Bible scholars. Uh, the first would be probably uh, the majority would be non-religious. Then you have Bible-believing. Or maybe there are more Catholics, probably more Catholics, I don't know. Catholic, Orthodox, and then uh, the smallest would be the liberal Christians or the mainline, sometimes called mainline denominations. These aren't necessarily in size order, but if you go to the Society of Biblical Literature, which is the number one American Bible conference, happens every year right before Thanksgiving, this year it's in Boston, you'll see that most of the people there, maybe not most, but a good 
amount of the people there are just not religious people. They're atheists, they're agnostics, and they're interested in studying the Bible just from the perspective of, uh, well, we don't believe in miracles, we don't believe in God, but this is an interesting book. And that's the non-religious type of Bible scholar. When you go to read a commentary, you know what a commentary is? It's like a book explaining the Bible. So like, you have like a commentary on the book of Matthew, and it's like the size of the Bible itself, but it's just talking about Matthew the whole time. If you're reading a, a, a commentary by a non-religious Bible scholar, then they're going to have a lot of skeptical things to say. They're going to be questioning everything. They're going to say it's not even written by Matthew. It's not even written, well, they'll probably still say it's written in the first century, but you know, they're, they're going to come at it with a certain angle. Bible-believing, uh, Bible scholars, scholars, category two there, they also write commentaries, they also write textbooks, so you have to be aware of like what sort of place is somebody coming from. Then you have Catholic. I really put that in a different category because Catholic and Orthodox people, their approach is just so different, it really is a, another category. Because for them, it's not a question of what happened historically or what does the Bible say? It is, what does the, what is the church taught? Because they believe in the authority of the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. Uh, there are about a billion Catholics. And then as far as Orthodox people go, I think it's more like um, a few hundred million. Their books are usually indicated by what's called an imprimatur, which is a, a particular seal of the church that'll be like right in the beginning of the book. And they say this is officially authorized by the Catholic Church and it's good for Catholic doctrine. Okay. Um, and then you have liberal Christians. These are people who are studying the Bible. They usually use non-religious techniques, but they themselves do believe in God and they do believe in at least certain parts of the Bible as being legitimate. Okay. So as a result of all these different ways of looking at the Bible, there are different views of inspiration. Number one, we're going to call the naturalist view. It's the idea that nothing outside of nature ever happens. Our, our universe is a closed system. There are no spirits, there are no demons, there are no gods, right? That's naturalism. So the naturalist view of the Bible is that the authors of the Bible interpreted their own experiences and told stories on the basis of what they believe God had done. So it's, it's, it's very much, this is what these people thought. Obviously, we know better, but like this is what they thought. And when they, when God speaks in Scripture, it's not God speaking. It's somebody thinking God speaking, and they're writing down what they think God said, or else they're just making it up altogether. That's the naturalist view of the Bible. Position number two would be what we might call partial inspiration. And that's the idea that God inspired some parts of the Bible, but not others. Typically, those parts rejected by those who hold this view are the parts that disagree with their, with their morals or their view of science or history or whatever present-day views they, they hold to. So that's the, the partial inspiration point of view. This, this one right here goes along with non-religious Bible scholars. This partial inspiration view tends to go with liberal Christians, uh, scholars. And then number three, going in order of like, don't believe it's from God at all, to believe every single letter is inspired. Number three would be the view called infallible. This is the idea that the Bible is inspired. It's inspired when it comes to belief and practice. That's important, those two words for this view. You have belief and practice. So when the Bible speaks about history or science, maybe it gets it wrong sometimes. But when it talks about what you're supposed to believe and how you're supposed to live, it's infallible. No mistakes. Okay? Then the next one up from that is what's called... I don't know. I struggle with these category names. I'm going to call it inerrant. All right, so these would be the four main categories. Naturalist, partial inspiration, infallible, and inerrant. Inerrant means there are no mistakes in the Bible. Okay, there, there are no errors in errant, right? And 
There are really, however, three subcategories of inerrancy. Okay, so that's why I'm, I'm like hesitating on how many categories to put down for you. Uh, the first one is uh, superintendence, and then we'll call the second one verbal superintendence, and then the third one we'll call dictation. All right, so these are three types of inerrancy. The superintendent's view is that God works, God worked with those who wrote the Bible throughout their entire lives, giving them the sorts of experiences that would guarantee that when they came to write the Bible, they ended up writing what God wanted written. It's not that God's whispering in their ear while they're writing it down. That's dictation. And the, the weaker form of superintendence is that the concepts God wanted, they communicated. The verbal view of superintendence is that God was able to inspire them to such a degree of precision that every word they wrote was exactly what God wanted written. Okay? And then dictation is what it sounds like. God basically speak, spoke to them the exact words he wanted them to write down. And so the person is more like a secretary than an author. The term for these two would be plenary verbal inspiration. Okay, plenary verbal means all the words. Plenary just, just means all. Uh, all. All the words are inspired for those two, whereas here it's inspired, but it's, it's the idea is not the specific words themselves. Here it's inspired and authoritative when it comes to belief and practice, but not uh, history or science or things that are not related to what it's talking about. Here there are certain parts that are inspired, other parts that are not, and we need the scholars to tell us which parts are legit and which parts aren't. Here there's no God anyhow, but some of the Bible is true, so you got to figure out which parts accurately record what happened and which parts are made up, myths and that sort of thing. There might be another view that I don't know about, but those are the big ones, okay? Now, what I am going to be assuming is that you are in a number four category here. And the whole thing is a little awkward because it's like the Bible doesn't actually say how God did it, right? I mean, we read all those verses. It just said it's by the Holy Spirit. And it's like, well, do you believe that or do you not believe that? If you do believe that, then it would make sense that there aren't going to be mistakes there if, it's, if God's involved in the process. But people hold all different kinds of views here. What I'm saying is not really going to work. Actually, it would work for three or four, my approach to this class. Whether you went with the infallible or the inerrant point of view, it's, it's not going to work for the first two because... Uh, people in the first two categories are not going to agree with what the Bible says if it disagrees what they think is right. You know what I mean? And that's a question of where do you sit with, with reference to Scripture. So if this is Scripture right here, so where are you in reference to Scripture? Uh, are you above Scripture or are you below Scripture? Do you decide what parts of Scripture are true and relevant to your life? Or... Do you sit below the authority of Scripture and the Scripture tells you? And if you disagree with Scripture, you change. Those are two very different points of view. The first two positions are above Scripture. The second two positions are below Scripture saying, I'm going to recognize, this is the big word here, the authority of Scripture. If the Scripture has authority, that means you have to do what it says. And when, if it doesn't have authority, then... It's up to you to decide, well, would this be good for my life? Like, like, let's say, for example, anybody ever read Moby Dick? The book Moby Dick? No? What great classical piece of literature were you forced to read in high school? Don't tell me Harry Potter. Give me, give me something a little better than that. Of Mice and Men. Of Mice and Men, right. Okay. That was a sad book. Okay, so of Mice and Men, there are different things that happen in that book. Right, you have, uh, what was the guy named, Lenny? That, you know, you have these two guys, right? And George, I think was the other guy. 
and uh, Lenny was his mind was limited and he committed a crime and the book unfolds right different things happen in it when you read that book do you say to yourself this book is authoritative for my life no of course not you're just like this is what this author thought right and, you, and it's not even clear is this really what this author thinks everyone else should do or is this just like something they made up right if you're reading the Bible like of mice and men, then you're gonna be like, oh, well, that's, that's inspiring or that's tragic. I, I better be sure to be nice to people that are less fortunate or have limited mobility or mental handicaps of some sort. You might come away saying that, right? It might inspire you to be kind to those who are in need. But that's because you're sitting above of mice and men and you're saying, well, I th I'm gonna take this from that book. When it comes to scripture, if it really is inspired by God, if we really believe that in whatever version of that uh, you want to hold to, then it has authority over you, which is to say, when Jesus says, you have to forgive people, you don't get to say, but you don't know what they did to me. If it's really inspired, then it's authoritative. If it's authoritative, then we have to do what it says. And that means that even when we think it's a dumb idea to love our enemies, like Jesus taught us, we still do it. And that's, that's where I land on this whole thing, and I hope you uh, will land there as well. Depending on your view of inspiration, you're going to have a different methodology. What I'm going to do as far as methodology goes is what's called biblical theology. There are really two, <laughs> three main kinds of uh, doctrinal development systems. The first is, I'm just going to put mine first, biblical theology. And then you have systematic theology. And then you have the historical critical method. Okay? The historical critical method is, is, starts with the assumption that parts of the Bible are false. And you have to figure out, using history, the tools of history, historiography, you have to figure out what parts of the Bible actually happened and what parts didn't. That's the historical critical method. Syst then systematic theology is where you read all the verses together and you arrive at a doctrine, the final form of that doctrine. You're not really interested in how it's developed over the canon of scripture. And then biblical theology, which is my preference, is where you're looking at how a doctrine developed throughout the Bible. Right? So you're interested to see how it grew or how it changed over time. And each of these has its own merits. The historical critical method, you know, starts with an assumption that I don't, that I don't hold. So I, I don't really go much with that. But the historical critical scholars tend to do a lot of really good research on the historical context. Like, what was the world like in the first century in the Roman Empire in this little province called Judea? That's really helpful for all of us. So it's not like it, it's totally irrelevant or something. It still has something to teach us. Okay, so when it comes to doing biblical theology, there, there are certain rules to it, okay? So let me just list out for you a bunch of these rules or principles. I'll just call them principles. One of the principles is that you need to gather all the verses on a subject, okay? Let's say you're working on the doctrine of anthropology. What are humans? Do we have bodies? Do we have souls? Do we have souls and spirits? Are we monists? Are we dualists? Are we whatever the three-person version of that would be? Like, what is a human being? Like, do we, do we have an immortal soul? Does the soul die when we die? Does it go to sleep until the resurrection? What is the resurrection? Is it waking us up from suspended animation? Is it uh, reconstituting our atoms? You know, like, how does everything work as far as humans go? You know, are we the image of God? You know, these, these kinds of things. So the way you do that is the first thing, if you're doing a biblical theology on what is a human being, then you want to collect all those verses that talk about that subject, right? Now that would be quite a task, wouldn't it? Can you imagine trying to find all the verses on a given subject? It would take a long time, right? You probably would, have, if you want to be truly honest with it, you would read through the entire Bible, keeping an eye on just that subject that you're researching. 
So that would take a long time, right? <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't be reading it like slow because you could, you could kind of scan through parts that don't relate to that. And um, it turns out, if you're studying, we're gonna talk about this after the break anyhow, but if you're studying the doctrine of anthropology, the places that talk about what a human is and death in particular are the depressing parts of the Bible. So like Job, he's having a rough life. And so he talks about dying a lot. Ecclesiastes, the glass is half empty, the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Um, Genesis, creation, right? There's a chapter in 1 Corinthians that talks about resurrection that's super important. There are some little bits in the prophets. You know what I mean? So like you gather all these verses together. Thankfully, we have the internet. A lot of people have already gathered together most of these things for us. So usually we don't have to go out and, and find them on our own, although it's way more fun that way. And then another, another principle is you allow for the history of redemption, progression. And what I mean by that is that early in the Bible, you have certain things explained. And then as time goes on, the history of redemption, the history of God working with his people develops, it progresses. So if I ask you the question, are you allowed to work on Saturday? Does anybody here work on Saturdays? Now, let's say you wanted to go to the Bible with that question, are you allowed to work on Saturday? There are certain parts of the Bible, there's actually a chapter in Exodus that says that if you work on Saturday, you are to be killed, executed on the spot. Yeah, and there was a guy that didn't take that seriously in chapter 16 of Exodus. And he goes out on Saturday and he's picking up sticks. Why is he picking up sticks? To make a fire. And he gets busted. And they bring him back to Moses. And they're like, we found this guy picking up sticks on Saturday. And, and, Mos and they said to Moses, what's the penalty? What should we do? Moses asked God, God, what should we do? What should we do? God said, execute him. Whoa. <laughs> so if you read Exodus then you're going you're gonna to probably start going around trying to throw rocks at people, literally, who work on Saturday, right? I mean, it sounds silly, but that's the problem with only looking at one part of the Bible. You have to allow for the progression of the history of redemption. Early on, yes, you weren't allowed to work. Well, actually, early on, there was no rule about it. And then in the time of Moses, God gave a rule. He doesn't want his people working on the Sabbath day. And then by the time of Christ, Christ is still keeping the Sabbath, but after the work that he does on the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, now we learn that there's a new covenant and we're no longer under the old covenant. And now we are able to work on Saturday if we want to, right? That's what I mean by the history of redemption, the development within the scripture itself. Biblical theology pays special attention to that. I have forgot to say this, but this is actually really important. You, when you're developing a doctrine, you're doing biblical theology, you really should pray. I mean, if we believe that God is lurking just beneath the surface of Scripture, in other words, that He inspired it through the Spirit, then we should also believe that God lurks just above the surface of Scripture as well. In other words, that when we read the Bible, that God can help us understand it. All right. So one is the inspiration. The other is help from God while, or the illumination uh, while we're reading. Another, another big important thing that I kind of emphasized last time is that we want to be willing to change our beliefs if the preponderance of the biblical evidence turns out to challenge what we currently believe. The truth has nothing to fear. That's my little slogan for that. But that's the idea that when we're doing biblical theology, I know we all have like whatever belief we have, but when we do it, we should be willing to have the Bible mess with our theology, have it correct us, have it challenge us, have it alter what we believe. That's, that's an important mindset. Here's another thing. Don't insist on figuring everything out. Obviously, when you're doing biblical theology, you want to figure everything out. That's the whole point of it. But sometimes, you don't really understand how to work out this verse with that verse with the other verse. And I think it's much better to just be honest and be like, I don't have a solution to how this all makes sense right now, but I'm not going to twist the Bible and I'm not going to come up with an idea that I know contradicts what the Bible says. History of redemption, we talked about that. This is a good one. Work to arrive at a position 
a doctoral position that has the greatest explanatory scope. I'll give you an example. All right, in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, it talks about spiritual manifestations or gifts. It talks about like speaking in tongues, interpretation, prophecy, these kinds of things, right? I don't know if you ever read that part. But in one place it says, the person who speaks in tongues should pray that he may interpret. And in another place, it's, it says something like one person would speak in tongues and then another person would interpret. Okay? So you might have one doctrine that says, one, one church that says, oh no, the same person has to interpret. And then another one that says, oh, it always has to be somebody different. If you arrived at a doctrine with a better explanatory scope, it would be something like this. Sometimes the same person can interpret and sometimes somebody else can. You see what I did there? I just took both of those ideas and I put them under the same umbrella of a doctrine with a greater explanatory scope. Um, that's just like a very small example of that. In other words, what we're always seeking is cohesion. We're, we're seeking to synthesize an understanding that embraces all of scripture, not just like the verses we like. Another part of biblical theology, include others in your study. That doesn't mean that like every time you read the Bible, you have to have somebody else next to you. But it does mean that once you think you've arrived at an understanding, it's super helpful to consult what other people say. And I'm not just talking about living people. And I'm not just talking about people your same age or of your same group. Engage with what other people have said in the past, what other people say now, what people from totally different backgrounds say. And hold your, your beliefs up to theirs to see how they hold up right? Because I don't believe, when I said that before, the truth has nothing to fear, I really don't believe that truth should ever be afraid. If something is really true, if you've really arrived at a, uh, the truth of something, then the more you criticize it, the more you're skeptical of it, the more you bring objections against it, the more it's going to stand up to that scrutiny, okay? It's like a piece of metal. You have soft metal, you have hard metal. For example, if you have gold and you hit it with a hammer, let's say you, you had a, a gold necklace and, and you hit the chain with a hammer as hard as you can. What's gonna happen to it? It's gonna get smushed, right? It's, it's gonna change its shape because gold is a very soft metal. You hit it with a hammer really hard, it's gonna, it's gonna bend or it's gonna break. However, if you have something made out of stainless steel and you hit it with a hammer, you just hurt your hand. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's just a stronger material. And that's what I believe truth is. I don't think truth is like gold. I think it's more like stainless steel in the sense that it can handle criticism. It can handle being held up and being doubted. And I know a lot of the time when we're younger, our parents don't want us to doubt. Our, friend, you know, our teachers don't want us to doubt because when you're younger, you just can't handle it yet. But you're, you're growing up in a world where you are increasingly a minority. You're increasingly someone who is part of a belief system that's increasingly marginalized. And as a result of that, you need to be able to handle doubt. Doubt from other people and doubt from within yourself and not be afraid of it because doubt is a servant of truth. Because if you doubt something and then you have the courage to face it, you'll look into it, you'll research it, you'll figure it out. And if it's not true, why do you want to believe it anyhow? And if it is true, then you've dealt with your doubts. Right? So you shouldn't be afraid of doubt. You shouldn't be afraid of truth. Truth is going to be able to handle it. It can handle the fiercest strike. And you'll just be like that cartoon character that's like shaking in the air after he hits something really hard. And then last of all, when it comes to doing doctrine and biblical theology, you should seek to make it practical. Because let's face it, what good is it to know all of the doctrines of the Bible and you're still a jerk? What good is that, right? Now you're, now you're like a, an anti-advertisement where you're like, hey, Christianity doesn't work, look at me. No, don't be that person. Don't be that guy, don't be that girl. Don't, don't do that. Look, if, if we are going to be in conversation with the Bible, understanding the Bible, then let's live the way the Bible calls us to live as well. Um, and, and look for practical application, all right? That's enough, that first lecture, as well as this one, those were introductory. You know, like what are the different categories for belief about the Bible and that sort of thing? Any questions or does this stuff make sense? All right.
One of the things that really will be of a benefit to you in this class is that you're gonna understand what the categories are. Like what are the options and what are they called? Sometimes if I use a word that you don't know, I'm not trying to be a jerk, I'm not trying to be snobby. I just don't know that you don't know that word. So I really just need you to, to just don't be embarrassed or anything, just raise your hand or, or blurt out uh, what does that word mean, okay? Because my goal is, is not to make you think that I'm smart. My goal is to help you understand what these doctrines are, because that's what this class is about, okay? Please ask questions and stuff. That's enough for bibliology. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to take a look at the notes for this episode, you can get those at restitutio.org. Just find episode 157, Theology Part 2. I wanted to read out a new review that we got on iTunes through Apple Podcasts, and this is from Justin in Miami, Florida, titled Biblical, Refreshing, and Informative. Justin writes, Restitutio is an excellent podcast that emphasizes the importance of getting back to the original faith of the good news of the kingdom of God and his Messiah Jesus, as understood by our first century brothers and sisters. Thanks, Justin, for that quick review. I really appreciate it. Honestly, that is probably the best sentence summarizing what it is I'm trying to do here that I've ever read. So thanks so much for that. Have you written a review for Restitutio yet? If you wouldn't mind, I'd sure appreciate it. It helps a lot. So far, we have 44 ratings in iTunes and only two on Stitcher. So if it's not too much trouble, maybe you could help out on Stitcher. You just go to stitcher.com and search for Restitutio in the search bar, and you can leave a review there or Apple Podcasts, whatever's easier for you. But this really does help out a lot and let people know about this podcast And it, it, uh, as far as search results go. As far as comments go, Owen Murphy wrote a comment on a paper I wrote back in 2016 called Why Did Jesus Die? He says, Hello, Sean. I found this study you have posted thorough and instructive today after Brandon Duke mentioned it on Facebook yesterday. The communal aspect I mentioned in our discussion on Facebook a few days ago with Seth Moore and Brandon seems to fit so well. I express it as, one, the communal aspect of the Old Testament sacrificial system as only for Israel and a covenant the Gentiles were shut out of, and two, the community of mankind aspect which Christ, as the second Adam, took responsibility for. As Moses sprinkled the blood of animals on the twelve tribes, so Christ's blood is sprinkled on all mankind. Thoughts? Owen, oh, I think you're definitely onto something. A lot of my thoughts on this subject along these lines came from Joshua Throw's presentation on Dale Tuggy's Trinities podcast. So if you haven't listened to that episode, actually, I believe there are two, go check that out at trinities.org. You can just search for atonement there and find the communal substitution view that Thoreau put out there. Um, or take a look at my paper here. The, the, essentially, the, the goal here is to look at Christ as a representative of the human race. And this is one way we can avoid the justice worry of somebody substituting in for somebody else who's actually guilty and uh, the issue of a double injustice in that case. If that person is, in fact, the representative of the class or of the group, then that person can take responsibility, even if he or she did not do anything wrong. So uh, that's really the strength of this view. I really like both of those, to be honest, Owen. I like the idea of Jesus as the representative Israelite. That's what Messiah means, after all, right? That he is the one authorized by God to represent Israel and to stand for Israel. Uh, but it's actually bigger than that. Israel, in a sense, stands in for all of humanity. And so uh, this other way of thinking of Jesus as the second Adam really emphasizes that aspect. And if, if there's anything I can say as far as atonement theories over the last 20 centuries goes, is that we do well not to pigeonhole ourselves into one particular viewpoint that then excludes others. I, th I think it's just a it's just like a diamond with many facets that as you spin it around and look at it from different angles, there are different glories and perspectives of beauty that you can see. So thanks so much for that. If you're curious about this, I'm probably going to post this as an episode maybe next year. Uh, I, I've got a whole bunch of my theological 
talks that I have not put on Restitutio uh, that I that I mean to get up there at some point. But alas, we're in the middle of this theology class, and this is going to go for a while. So, so we'll see about that. But you can check it out now if you want to go online and uh, just if you go to Restitutio and click on articles, you'll find it that way because it is a, a full length theological essay. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I'm uh, hoping to see some folks at the debate tomorrow night in the Charlotte, North Carolina area with Dale Tuggy and Michael Brown. Uh, but if I don't see you there, I'll catch you online next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear. <laughs>